HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Bob's Red Mill believes in baking, breakfast, and the pursuit of good food for all. Learn more at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, on this weekly journey through culinary history. And my guest today is that intrepid traveler and photographer and writer, Naomi Duguid. She has explored the countries of what was the Persian Empire, at least a few of the regions, and she wrote in her, she has recently published a book by Artisan called A Taste of Persia. She crossed, she writes about crossing boundaries and cultures to uncover a wealth of history, culture, and culinary traditions. Though many of these regions are divided by borders and religions, the flavors of their cuisines are very much tied together. And that's what we're going to talk about, how they're tied together and what those flavors are. She took her travels through Armenia, Azerbaijan, Georgia, Iran, and Kurdistan. Naomi, as I said, is a photographer, a writer, a teacher, a cook, and of course a world traveler. Her book just before, recent book before this one, was Burma, and she was on the show for that. I think it was that last year, year before. That was but that was would have been, believe it or not, four years ago. Oh, good heavens, no! <laughs> <laughs> yes, time flies when you're having fun. And has uh, won, she won the IACP Cookbook Award for that? And yes, I see, 2013, right? <laughs> um, and the Taste Canada Food Writing Award. Her previous books also won so many awards: Flatbreads, which she wrote with uh, Jeffrey Alford. Um, and Seductions of Rice, Hot, Sour, Salty, and Sweet, also a James Beard cookbook winner, and Mangoes, and Curry Leaves, and Beyond the Great Wall. All of these are just beautiful picture books, culture books, history books. As I mentioned at another uh, uh, event, that you really do write cultural and culinary landscapes because they're accompanied by these incredible photographs. 
What made you decide to do these older regions remaining of Persia? Well, hmm, there's so many different answers to that question. There's sort of a, how could I not be interested? Maybe the question is, what took me so long to do that? Ah. Um, but um, it's in in the Flatbreads book, um, which was the first book I was you know part of. Jeffrey and I wrote Flatbreads and Flavors came out in 1995. I traveled in '89 for that book. I traveled doing research for that book to Georgia. And um, and then to Turkmenistan, to some of the stands as well. They were all at that point part of the Soviet Union. Uh, it was disintegrating, but it was still the Soviet Union. And the Georgian food especially just knocked me out. It was so extraordinary. Um, Jeffrey, for that same book, uh, got stuck his nose into Armenia uh, briefly and got to Azerbaijan uh, as well for about a week. And so I knew there was this treasure trove of... of culinary tradition there. But at the time when we wrote the Flatbread book, it was still sort of the Soviet Union or just beyond. I also knew that it didn't exist in isolation and that it was connected to the the Persian, you know, depth. I mean, um, Persia is one of the oldest culinary traditions, certainly one of the earliest ones that we have documentation about. And so there's been that those foods and that attitude to food in the region that is Iran and radiating out from there for, you know, two and a half thousand years and more. Um, and so, okay, a chance to contextualize all those Caucasus cuisines, to engage with Persian cuisine as as a sort of Ur cuisine, as an, as an origin place mm-hmm. for a lot of other um, remarkable culinary tradition that you know, that influence extends to Europe and thence to North America. Um, And I also want to talk about Kurdistan because that is to say the Kurdish region in Iraq because the Kurds there have been cut off by Saddam Hussein, by the situation in Iraq for a long time. Kurds speak an Iranic language and there are a lot of Kurds in Iran as well. In other words, the people borders, the people um, sort of uh, concentrations of Georgians, Armenians, Kurds don't reflect where countries are. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's Kurds in Iran, there's Armenians in Iran, there are people of Georgian ancestry in Iran, a lot of Azeris in Iran. So it, it just sort of, that's how I linked them all together. And then the chance to go to Iran, wow, and to see it as this place of origin, but not, it's not an old, it's an old, old place, but it's also a now place. And there's interesting things happening now. And that also seemed to me to be really important, to have a, a sense of human connection with people there now. That's a long answer to your question. No, but, but those I are think, all the pieces. You and know? I, I think that's a beautiful answer. And, you know, the, having a link with people who are there and the food and, you know, putting a human face on, on lives, I think, is, is very important, particularly in these times. I think yeah, exactly. it's, you know, it's, yeah. it's, it's wonderful. Yeah. Uh, and the food ways, of course, of all these regions... They, you know, they. Some people would think, well, they're all very different, but there are these. There are these flavors that tie them all together. And of course, the cover of your book, which we will have on, up on the website and the show page, it shows this beautiful picture of a background with saffron water. Yeah, I, and and it's of so course stunning. you think of yeah. Then you think of when when I think of you know someone says 
Persia to me. I think, yeah. oh, saffron, pomegranates, you know, yes. and <laughs> the colors. Yeah, the colors, the colors and the are flavors. So intense. Yeah, intense. Well, and that, that photograph, Gentle and Hires did the studio photography for the book. And that photograph was the first shot that they, at the studio shoot, the first shot that they did. And Andrea Gentle was, I think, sort of playing around and getting, getting, moving her way into the, the day. And so I arrived, and she was... I thought, oh, what she got there? A brass tray with some saffron water on it. Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> and, and then it ended up being used so spectacularly yeah. on the cover. Yeah, no, it's really interesting if you think about... Um, I think of it as a culinary region. So you've got languages languages that are from different language families, Georgian, Armenian. They're, they're different. Georgian isn't Indo-European. Armenian is, but doesn't have much relationship to uh, Persian. Um and then Azeri is a Turkic language. Um, and then you have uh, all these different landscapes. But it's sort of like the Mediterranean. You think of the Mediterranean as a culinary region. You can tell, I mean, even if you're just talking different countries, you can tell that there's a relationship between Greek food and Spanish food. They're at opposite ends of the Mediterranean. But they one's distinctively Greek and the other's definitely Spanish or Catalan or whatever. But there's still, there's a cousinage. And so that's why I find this really interesting that as a Persian culinary region um, that you can put have a meal with a Georgian stew and a Persian vegetable dish and an Armenian soup and they're not arguing with each other. They're talking to each other. But you can tell that this one's Armenian and that one's Persian. And then there are, of course, dishes where more than one um, culture claims it, claims mm. claims it as their own right. identity, and I talk about gastro nationalism a bit in the book because these are places, especially for the Armenians who've suffered oh, oh so much over time, and the Georgians who who are coming out of the Soviet Union and needing to say no, we're here, we're really here, and we do exist. That affirmation of identity, food is something we use to identify ourselves with, and so that also was very interesting in the course of traveling in the region and know. it's and it's coming up more and more lately with um so many different cultures absolutely and, and not yeah. just you know not just but they like, all have they all use tart fruits um t- with savory ingredients so, so that you, you know, would say that was what that's uh, one that was thread. my next question yeah what is a what what are one the thread. threads okay well, tart fruits with tar- savory. in term- culinary mm-hmm. connections i would say tart fruits with with savory dishes so that you know pomegranate molasses which is a sort of tart with a bit of a sweet edge tart uh, flavor you find that in in georgia and in northern iran and then in, in the caucasus countries another and it's a brilliant magic ingredient you can perk many things up with it um don't feel you have to be cooking a food from the region to use pomegranate molasses um and then uh the use of fresh herbs the use of dried herbs fresh herbs on the table to sort of use as a condiment and also fresh herbs chopped finely into anything from a sort of frittata the cuckoo of of um, iran to oh, many things um and that and then a, a really creative use of those things that never come across sounding glamorous but are full of flavor and potential and that is all the all the um uh all the ingredients from the bean the world of beans you know split peas and you know cow peas and all of that used brilliantly so that they they're just it's extraordinary so it's a, a really good place for people who are not necessarily vegetarian but vegetarians but also for people who are wanting to sort of eat lightly mm-hmm. and um have maybe use meat as a flavoring rather than as a you know big fat hunk of meat um without sort of cutting meat out entirely, it's a, it's a great place to go looking for food because people have been eating sustainably, have had to be eating sustainably in the region 
for many hundreds of years, <laughs> right? right? So, right. and they're still eating in the, those same ways, and so it's um, that part is is really fun. A lot of and some cheese. People use cheese in various ways that, that are interesting, but that's those are the things. And then the other thread, of course, which is culinary in terms of action, not uh, ingredient, is uh, and I. I always need to talk about this because it's so important, is hospitality, is the generous hospitality, mm -hmm. the sharing of food, and food being out also not in courses, but uh, uh, sort of so that you can have a bite of this and a bite of that. That's very Persian. Yeah. And you you do often talk about the importance of the hospitality, and, and I think oh, that, yeah. that, is, that's a, that, that is such an important culinary tradition, lest yeah. we forget that it's not yes, always exactly. just about food. Yes. <clears throat> that you don't enter a person's home without being offered something. Yeah, and you're offered water first and then, you know, tea or coffee, depending on where you are and who it is. Um, this is this is just extraordinary. And even I was in a, I was in a refugee camp um, in Kurdistan, and um, these were refugees from Syria, who are Kurds from Syria. Um, and uh, I went in with somebody from the World Food Program. And we were, he had some errands. And so we were in somebody's tent, and she brought, you know, they're having to... Um, they're having to hold their water. She brought water out and offered it on a tray. And it was like, and of course I'm going to accept this. I'm not going to say, you have so little, I'm not going to take your water. I'm going to accept her because it's her dignity and her obligation to offer it and her pleasure also that I as a guest should accept it. And that's one of the other interesting things when people are generous with you is how to feel how to accept with grace is right. another piece of an obligation as a guest. Yeah, you have to understand it would be an affront to them if you did. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it, it, right? it's not. It, there has to be respect. Yeah. I think. Um, well, first of all, I want to go back to the saffron because <laughs> saffron. I mean, who would have ever thought that this incredibly labor-intensive? Oh yes. Uh, it's a spice. It's a spice. It's a flavoring. It's not what. It's not an herb. It's not a spice. It's a. Fla I mean, I guess you call it a spice. And yet, what? Why did? What did they think about it? Why what's did the they deal? first? Yeah. yeah what's the deal? Well, how I did think, that happen? I do think it goes back to Zoroastrianism, and I don't know if there's any you know evidence that contradicts this, but intuitively it seems to me. So saffron is the st stigmas of a, of the crocus, and you they get picked out and dried and so on. But Zoroastrianism, that the first underpinning, the really the Persian religion, you could say, um, but it spread all through Central Asia, and um, and we've just had Zoroastrian New Year, Noros. Um, at the spring equinox, um, the belief is that Ahura Mazda is uh, the sun and goldenness and warmth are are the force of good, and it seems to me there's something about that goldenness that is that speaks of the good and the best. And then then once you have something that's so precious as saffron, well, of course you're you associate the best with the best, right? And I think that's what it is because there's an urge even in in Georgia, people use what they call saffron, and it's actually safflower. Mm. Um, or you can use marigold. marigold. Well, more, it's more yeah. often marigold, but you can use safflower as well. Anything to tint it a little yellow. Well, that's, I mean, that's a Persian legacy, and they don't have saffron in their country, so they're making do. Um, but it's it's something, there's something magical and kind of wonderful. It um, truly is. I mean, if you've ever, um, anyone who, I'm sure most everyone 
listening to the show will have worked with saffron or maybe not. But if you hold a saffron thread between your fingers, your fingers end up being that beautiful yes. gold, golden yellow color you talk about. And, and the other thing is people can be afraid of it, but actually, you know, you just take a couple of threads and put it in, put them in warm water for a little, and they'll tint the water and then use the water as you're, as you're tinting. You put a little cooked rice in the water and it gets tinted and then you mix it back in with the rice you've cooked or whatever. So it's, you don't have to be... You don't have to be rich to use saffron because it's actually something you use in you small quantities. You don't need a lot, exactly. <laughs> right. It's, it, it is wonderful. And, um, and of course, that's spread throughout the, um, the Mediterranean as well. Yes. Um, there, are, there are different qualities of saffron. Yes. And the saffron is grown in Morocco and in Spain. Saffron used to be grown in England. Think mm. of the, the, the village Saffron Walden. Um, and but it's very labor intensive. So of course, as labor becomes more expensive, it it leaves the countries where labor is expensive. Yeah, yeah. And saffron's also grown in Kashmir. Yeah, those crocuses are so tiny; you have to yes, have little fingers to little purple guys. pull yeah. those out. Uh, and pomegranates, of course, pomegranates are that wonderful, magical fruit which have become happily very popular here in America than, yeah. than we ever yeah. you, know, you could never really find them before you mentioned you know the pomegranate molasses but and the seeds you know having that burst of flavor and, and yeah. playing around with the right way to get the seeds out of the pots <laughs> yes yeah exactly. but they do they add color they add tartness yeah and they're really very available in good shape from sort of October till Mm, kind of now, kind of finishing around late March. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, you mentioned um, the important use of herbs, and that's so much a part of the cuisine. Green, 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 yes. Green. Uh -huh. I had, I sort of had to smile to myself because if you call it a recipe, one of the recipes in the book, not really, maybe a suggestion, a description, a recipe, or whatever. Yeah, yes. of, you should have an herb plate. And here's the recipe I'm thinking, and you need a recipe for an herb plate, right? But people don't think... But you need to reassure people. And just yeah. if you have a few sprigs of flat leaf parsley and maybe some cilantro coriander or maybe some basil or maybe you have a little dill or something, just a little freshness or some, some green onions, some scallion. Yeah. And not a radish, put, maybe. You know. Not to put in a dish that um, listeners no. have to understand. But as you, you just mentioned... put it on the table. As a break from a dish, maybe yeah. have a yeah. bite, right? Yeah, you just pick up some too. The, the closest analogy is really, a f for example, or you could add it to something you're eating in the same way as if you're eating pho um you'll you'll get in a in any restaurant with the name you'll get uh, some some greenery mm -hmm. to add to your pho some usually basil um it's that same kind of thing you get to add it to your taste All right and it perks it it it, it spikes it it lifts it all right, and it, it makes you have such a fresh palate for tasting mm -hmm. all the flavors i mm -hmm. think that's wonderful um what about other greens throughout the region like uh, vegetables more um what we would consider our ordinary side dish vegetables are they big on a lot of well there's you know this there's everything from the, the the category of dish called burani which is one of my favorite ways of introducing people to food in the region it's a it's a it's a persian uh, dish and so you cook say spinach uh, just till it's still bright green and and then you have some thick yogurt you can either drain it or you can buy thick yogurt um, you have fried some onions and you combine them you Press all the water out of the spinach. You add some yogurt to it. You and you stir it just a little. I don't like it all fully blended. Stir a little, and then you put some fried onions on top, and maybe sprinkle on a few walnuts. You know, again, what could be bad? Maybe a little saffron water if you have it, because it makes it very pretty. Um, that kind of thing is a really common side dish in Iran and in um, Azerbaijan. Also, people. Um, 
they use soups as a way of cooking vegetables. So you'll have, you know, potatoes in a soup. That you'll have them in a meat soup. You'll have them in a. You'll have dried apricots in a, in a, in an emmer soup, in a grain soup, in uh, Armenia. How interesting is that? Yeah, I love so that. So it's just, yeah. you know, there's sort of, um, and then there, there are things like purslane. You know, purslane has been around as a, gosh, everybody, you should really try this kind of um, green that is now starting to be more evident. Um, and those of us who've written about sort of the Eastern Mediterranean, or and I think of, of Paula Wolfert, for example, mm-hmm. saying to people, purslane, purslane, um, and, um, and, I've done a little of that purslane advocacy too, <laughs> but um, it's really interesting because it's used not so much in salads as it is in the Eastern Mediterranean, but in a soup in Kurdistan. Mm. Fabulous! It's it a has spring such a tart, soup. but it has a nice tart and it's flavor. Just gorgeous in a, yeah. with a with some lentils, and you you cook it together, and, and there's something. First time I had it, it was sort of this magic thing again. How can you know three or four ingredients turn into this? Yeah. Well, because. People over time have figured out that this is a delicious combo, so let's go for it, you know. And they used what they had. I mean, they they used what what they had, but they figured out how to make what they had delicious, and that's the thing that's really interesting. That And that brings me to another combination. um, Well, not a combination, but one Mm -hmm. thing leads to talk about another. Uh, Walnuts. Walnuts are everywhere, and they're used for a lot of different purposes, right? Yeah, walnuts. So walnuts in the region again are walnut trees. It's sort of like around uh, Grenoble or Lyon or something. Walnuts are very available. They grow easily, and so they're not expensive. So they are a substitute for meat, for example. Um, you know, not in the sense of oh, I'm a vegetarian. I'm not going to eat meat. I'm going to eat a walnut. But just for people who don't have money to have meat, so meat's relatively expensive. Walnuts relatively cheap. So they're used in that way. For example, there's this classical of uh, vegetable pâtés um, in Georgia called pukali. And so um, you cook the vegetable and then you put it in, these days, a food processor uh, with a lot of walnuts and the walnuts thicken it. Then you can cool it, let it cool to room temperature and then it's this lovely firm pâté. You can do it with beans, you can do it with all kinds of vegetables. Then they're used as a, as I mentioned earlier, a dressing on top of, say, a salad or the borani. Um, they can be used in a marinade on meat. Um, if you combine them with pomegranate molasses and ground walnuts and you rub them onto lamb or beef or pork, I mean, it's a marinade from Iran. I'm not trying to disrespect anybody, but it is great on pork as a marinade. <laughs> and then let it sit because the acidity of the pomegranate molasses mm-hmm. helped. And I wipe the marinade off and then grill them over the, over charcoal grill or whatever. Um, and then I like to um, add a little water to the the marinade I've taken off the meat and then cook it a little bit uh, so it's clean and safe and, and it's an extra little sauce for your rice. Well, the walnuts give it this lovely richness. And then when people are, are fasting in the Eastern Christian churches, they're not, people who are observant don't eat any animal product except occasionally some fish um, in the period, for example, before Easter, um, Lent. Well, then walnuts come into their own because, oh, something rich and lush and, you know, yummy. If they can't eat dairy, they can't eat meat. You know, um, walnuts <laughs> walnuts start to look like a fabulous, wonderful luxury. That's right. And they're, and they're good for you. And they are so lovely. <laughs> and then there's also there's some hazelnuts in the region, more eaten as a treat, not oh. used so much as an ingredient. And then pistachios. Right. In Iran. Right. Well, you think about it. You think of the nice green color and, you know, pistachios. Yeah. But the walnuts brought to mind a discussion um, that I've heard you talk about, and that is because the walnuts, you know, contain so much oil. There's a lot of mm-hmm. you know, oiliness in them. Mm-hmm. 
And that is the use or the non-use or the yes. non-existence of, of what we consider traditional cooking oils. Ah, yes. So people in the region, what's the oil that's available in the region is sunflower oil. Sunflowers grow everywhere in the region. And sunflower oil is the standard cooking oil. And so um, I mean, there's a lot of cooking that happens without oil because people are grilling or people are simmering, you know, they're making stews and soups and so on. So you might start with a little oil, but really... Um, but um, but sunflower oil is the oil they use. And so it's, it's actually harder to find good sunflower oil here than it is there because here often it's overly refined. It's, you know, to find a good sort of like a cold-pressed sunflower mm. oil that hasn't got chemicals, hasn't had chemicals used to sort of strip the sunflower seeds of every piece of oil, it's harder. Um, there's an olive oil. We're far from the Mediterranean in this region. If you think about the closest we come to the Mediterranean is at the very eastern end of the Black Sea, right where the Sochi Olympics were, mm-hmm. and and then due south from there with Georgia and um, Armenia, Azerbaijan, and then Iran. There are olive trees in growing in Iran in the north, and there are olive trees in uh, Kurdistan a bit, but they're rather special. So the ones in Kurdistan are grown by the Yazidis because they use olive oil in their religious ceremonies. And um, the olive trees in Iran apparently have been there for a long time, but it was mostly used for soap and, you know, lamps and so on long, long ago. And it's only fairly recently that olives as food and olive oil as food have become, you know, a thing in Iran. So they're not an inherent part of the culinary culture. They're something that's become a fashion amongst some people in some of the cities in northern Iran, is my sense of it. Hmm. Um, There was a while back, maybe 150 years ago and 100 years ago, when some of the Armenian merchants in Iran tried to make a business, apparently, of importing olive oil from the Mediterranean and, you know, getting... Didn't really go anywhere. They didn't have enough uptake, you know, as we would say (laughs) these days. But uh, but now uh, olive oil is, and Iranians are proud. In the city, several Iranians I met said, oh, you're interested in food? Have you tasted our olives? And I thought, wow, olives from Iran, how interesting. And it's, yeah, a recent thing. And they're, and they're quite good. Um, so, you know, it's uh, ideas do travel in many directions. And so this is a food idea that's traveled from the Mediterranean sort of east into almost into West Central Asia, basically, um, in the same way as Iranian ideas, everything, Persian ideas, everything from sharbats, the use of ice in f- to, to make food, and apricots traveled from Iran, from Persia, outward. Up to the I outer mean, the, world. These exchanges, <laughs> there's not just the Colombian exchange, there's yeah. ongoing exchanges of ideas and ingredients. Yeah, right? I mean, think empires. Think <laughs> empires, old world exactly. empires. Right? And then and think trade. Think yeah. money. And Absolutely. Trade. Yeah. And then, okay, how do the ideas work, you know, and in which way? Um, yeah. And so rice is one of those things in Iran. That rice came originally, the rice in Iran came originally long ago from India. Uh, but then the Persians developed their own varieties and so on. And now, of course, any Persian uh, worth the name will say, oh, but of course Persian rice is much, Persian better, rice, than, yes. much better than basmati. <laughs> Not even how they cook, I mean, the cooking method, yes, but even the rice to start with, Persian rice varieties, they say, oh, basmati is nothing compared to Persian <laughs> rice. But I guess all you have here is basmati. You can use that. No. Well, we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we've got so much more to talk about. Uh, sashiki, soups, uh, cooking fires. So stay tuned. We've got more Persian food coming up.
I don't think there's anybody worthy to run this company but the people who built it. I have employees who've been with me for more than 30 years and plus. Each and every one of them deserves to be an owner. That's just the way it ought to be and that's just the way it is. This is Bob Moore. He and his wife Charlie started Bob's Red Mill almost 4 decades ago. Today they offer one of the largest lines of organic whole grain foods in the country. And in 2010, on his 81st birthday, Bob gifted ownership of the company to his employees. I'd received plenty of offers to buy my company over the years, but selling out never felt like the right thing to do. When the time comes to let someone else run this show, I can't imagine selling it to a stranger. Giving the company to my hard-working employees just feels right. The company now has an employee stock ownership plan or ESOP. Stock is put in a retirement plan for all of its employees. When employees retire, the company buys back their shares. According to the National Center for Employee Ownership, about 11,000 companies in the US currently run as ESOPs. It just shows how much faith and trust Bob has in us. That's Bo Thomas, the company's engineer and maintenance superintendent. He's been with Bob's Red Mill for over 27 years and has put his four children through college in the process. For all of us, it's it's more than just a job. And, and obviously it's the same way for Bob too. Bob is still very active in the company. He's the president and CEO and you'll find him working at the mill just about every day because when you love something this much, you want to be a part of it. Well, I may have given them the company, but the boss part is still mine. Bob's Red Mill is committed to sharing only the freshest, best-tasting whole grain foods on the planet. Learn more about their mission of good food for all at bobsredmill.com/podcast. Hi, I'm here speaking with Naomi Dugood and uh we're talking about her recent book A Taste of Persia and so many wonderful recipes and stories and and stories about your travels Naomi um i particularly wanted to talk about some of the side trips and probably not even side trips but probably a you know main trip that you took and encountered some of the nomadic cultures um or the nomadic peoples or at least they were out doing their their farming or harvest other the um Yeah in 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 Iran um herding. well in Iran it, it's really interesting because you know people are prim- mostly in the region the people have sheep and goats and then there's some cattle sort of near the Caucasus um you know in in Azerbaijan and and Georgia um Georgia people eat a lot of sort of young beef but in um in Iran you see herds of of sheep and goats and then I was in the uh, mountains east of Shiraz and uh stayed with a um guy in a village it's sort of a a farm homestay kind of thing um and uh which I feel very lucky to have stumbled on and it turned out that this guy's second wife was uh the daughter of a nomad family up in the mountains and he said do you want to go up i need to go up and visit my in-laws do you want to go with me and my, yes okay grab so, your camera <laughs> you know, exactly and so um so up we went and these nomads live um in the mountains and they in the in the summer months uh from kind of late april 
until sort of late October. They're up in the mountains there, and then it does get cold. You don't think of Iran as cold, but it does get cold in the mountains, very continental climate. They travel south to near the Indian Ocean, um, and that's where they have their winter camp. So we went up, and it was extraordinary. They, they live in uh, felt uh, tents, beautiful felt tents, but they also had um, uh, each of the families in this encampment had a small house uh, made of bricks so that they could lock the door and store things. This is a sign of more wealth than they might have had earlier in earlier times mm. and a certain stability. But anyway, they travel. They walk 21 days down to the Indian Ocean with all their, their tents and so on on the back of their animals and with the herds walking and the children walking, already walking 21 days. And they were going to leave in 10 days. So I was very lucky to be there. <laughs> and they just had the Feast of the Sacrifice the day before. And that means you kill an animal, in their case a sheep, and you feed your family and the neighbors, and it's kind of like Thanksgiving, everybody coming together. Um, but when you've done that, <clears throat> there's leftovers. I don't mean cooked leftovers. I mean the leftovers of the animal. Um, and so in, I, I got, we got there, and the mother of the family was had just um, lit a fire, and <clears throat> she had the head and legs of the sheep. <clears throat> lower legs and feet. And so she was starting to make kalapoche, which is a classic dish in Iran. And actually, it's a dish that comes from the legacy of sheep rearing and sheep raising. It's a dish people love. So you can you don't have to be a nomad to eat this dish. It, in the cities, in the butcher shops, you see this line of... Now, they're all cleaned and everything. They're all kind of impeccable. Heads and then feed out. And you'll see people go, going in and buying a head and two feet or a head and four feet or whatever. And it's not because you're going to sit there and chew on a jawbone. It's, um, it's because you're going to cook all those ingredients, simmer them for a long time with a few aromatics and maybe an onion if you have it. And then you have this unbelievably rich broth. And basically, you're eating, think of Irish stew without the meat. Mm -hmm. You know, you're just eating the flavor that's come out of those things you've simmered. So I watched her <clears throat> singe the, you know, the hair off the, off the head and, and, and then clean it meticulously and clean it some more and scrape it and, oh, and the feet and everything. And then they went into the pot and then it cooked for, you know, an hour and a half. And then there we were eating it. And how were we eating it? The broth was poured into the bowls. Each of us had a bowl. And a large family sitting on the floor, on the rugs on the floor, around a plastic sort of tablecloth, and the souffle. And then we each had a bowl of this, and then there was flatbreads. And uh, the flatbreads, unleavened flatbreads that had been made sometime in the last week, um, so a lovely, fine, fine texture. And you dip the flatbread. You have, I had a spoon and the flatbreads. And so I'm eating, basically tearing the flatbreads into my soup. Completely satisfying. Flavor just to die for, you know, wonderful. Mm. Um, all from the basic ingredients, and it was so, it was just so incredible. Just and the, the daughter, their daughter, the my the second wife, had brought up from town. You know, she bringing to her family. She brought rice and she brought some cooked chicken, and everybody else had some of that. But why would I waste a food chit on something I could have somewhere <laughs> else when I could be eating nomad food with nomad? It was uh, really really amazing. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, and obviously, as you say, this was this was a a tradition that had been going on for centuries. Well, That's well, yes, Calipoche is something people go on. I mean, they make all the time, and uh, it's really wonderful. But to have it at its at its sort of source place, you know, to have it with nomads who'd raise the sheep, um, seemed to me an incredible privilege. You know? And there are so many soups. I mean, there are soups and stews 
the stew is a soup. The soup is yes, a stew. Yes, right, exactly. I mean, <laughs> they're, they're really substantial dishes made in a pot. So it's basically a one-pot dish in that sense. But then you're not. there isn't quite the coercion of a one-pot dish as we think of it in Europe because, because you can add flavorings, you can add herbs and so on. You can kind of modify your 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 one pot um, you know your one pot experience. There's, for example, there's um, chakapuli, which is a wonderful. T- I call it tarragon Easter stew. It's a you can make it with with lamb or with beef. Georgian, fabulous thing. And you you make it in kind of half an hour, three quarters of an hour. It's got flavor that tastes like it's simmered all day. Um, but the tarragon does this magic thing. Loads of tarragon in there. Um, it's incredible. And the Georgians eat it with bread. Um, whereas in most other parts of the region, if you were having a stew, a liquid dish like that, you'd have uh, you'd have bread, but you might also have rice with it. Mm-hmm. You know? And and breads are very important um, oh. in the culture. We did we, yeah. I had that at the top of the list, and we didn't talk. I mean, great wheat wheat a wheat lot of grows wheat, everywhere and or old not everywhere, but yes, and, and all, other old versions of wheat, new versions. Um, they uh, Armenians make a porridge out of it. So do the. So do the Persians. Um, and so there's flatbreads, there's leavened ones, there's unleavened ones. Um, there's filled flatbreads, kutab, uh, in, in Azeri. Um, there's uh, hachapuri, which anybody who's eaten at a Georgian restaurant will have had. Cheese filled usually, but during fasting times, again, they fill them with uh, cooked beans. Um, Take long just, instant lunch. You know, and, and unbelievable, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so it's really... Um, and then there's all the rice possibilities. And so the Georgians aren't rice eaters, uh, but the but the Armenians, but especially the Azeris and, and um, Persians and Kurds are all rice eaters. And the Kurds then have a kind of rice that's not like Persian rice. They'll eat, make Persian dishes, but they also have a, a Kurdish rice, and birinji kurdi, and it's... Um, it's more like a Mediterranean-style rice. And they grow it in Kurdistan, hmm. and they, they cook it quite differently. Again, more like you <clears throat> would cook a risotto, but not the same. And my favorite version of it is just uh, the water in the water goes, apart from a little onion, some pomegranate molasses. We're back to pomegranates. Some uh, chopped, crushed walnuts. The walnuts tint the water, so does the pomegranate molasses. Hmm. So the rice you could call it's like kind of dirty rice from from Louisiana, right. and it cooks, and the the oil in the walnuts enriches the water. When you finish, you have this rice that that you'd swear had parmesan or something in it because it's it's so lush and rich. Mm. It's only from the walnuts. Hmm. It's magic, and so you have that as a side. With you don't need very much with that. You can mm. eat it just as as you would eat a very simple risotto. Mm. Um, Really, that was a real discovery for me. I had no idea about Kurdish rice before I went. Uh, well, you also talking about um, it was so lush you didn't eat anything else. Um, another uh, interesting thing about the soups, the soups being, uh, you said one pot, one pot meal, but with a couple of courses. Yeah. Yes. And well, oh, that like, like well, a ditzy, right? The, the dizzy, yes, dizzy. there's a wonderful. It's it's called abgusht in in uh, Persian, but the 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 kind of nickname for it is dizzy in Iran and in uh, Azerbaijan they call it piti, and it's a it's a stew. So think of uh, chick, cooked chickpeas, some potato, and some bits of meat, and again lots of flavor because you've got the meat and it's simmered over a long time, um, and then it comes in a, usually in a vertical kind of. It looks like a mortar, a vertical pot. And it is a kind of mortar. It can be clay or, or metal. And you, you take a large spoon and you take this pot and you pour the liquid from this stew, it's quite liquid, um, into a separate bowl. 
and then you set that solids aside and into that bowl of soup you tear some flatbread and uh, I'm on the radio talking with my aunts. I should just say, say to our it's listeners. It's great. It helps, it's, it helps formulate the idea. Not, <laughs> sorry, everybody. <clears throat> and, then, and then you eat the soup with the lovely softened bread. Then you go back to those solids, and there's a sort of mortar comes with your serving if you're eating at a restaurant. And you just press down and mush them. And then you eat them with bread, too. And you have this two-part meal. Second course, yeah. It's a great cafe feast, and it's really a... It's one of the classic dishes in, in Persian tradition. Well, um, you mentioned dairy, and, and the region that has the most dairy is Georgia, as far as cheeses? I don't know about most. Or... I mean, the Georgians certainly, because they're a mountain place, you've got seasons, you know. So I, I uh, all the shepherds make cheeses. Cheese, yeah. And the Georgians are starting to re-explore and... Um, I guess I would say redevelop and encourage some of the traditional cheeses because during the Soviet era, many things got kind of um, many local things mm-hmm. got kind of pushed out. And my analogy is is often is, is to Franco Spain, where there was a loss of tradition that had to be retrieved. And the Georgians are doing that. It's a very interesting place, and of course. If you're going to the Caucasus, you have to go for the wine as well. The Georgians are retrieving. They have this extraordinary old wine tradition and the Armenians, and that too is being now being appreciated in the rest of the world. It's really a, a great thing. Yeah. I, I, mean, I have been hearing a lot more about the mm-hmm. Georgian wines, for mm-hmm. sure. Mm-hmm. The natural method, too, right. and all that. Right. It's influencing winemakers here in the States and in Canada and, and in Italy. Hmm. There's a lot of people making natural wines. Well... We have to talk about sweets. We've been talking about food and, and the and the culture and and some of the um, you know the old flavors and, and mm-hmm. the traditions. And there are plenty of sweets and and honeys and syrups oh well and yes and syrups and things. But tell me, what's, well what? well sweets. I think one of the things um, people do is uh, to preserve fruit. They make sharbats. They make syrups. This is a Georgian. I mean, this is a, a Persian tradition. And uh, so they uh, cook the fruit down. I like uh, one of my favorite recipes in the book is a rhubarb sharbat. I happen to love rhubarb. Um, so you make quite a sweet syrup intense, and you can store it in a jar, and then you again have your preciousness for wintertime. Um, and then you dilute it in, originally in Persia, dilute it with cold water. It's a refreshing drink in the, mm. in the heat. But you can also, you know, I like them with hot water, actually, in the wintertime, mm-hmm. breaking the rules. Um, also, there's, of course, the wonderful rice pudding tradition in, in um, Iran. Persian rice pudding is d- delectable. Um, there are versions of um, uh, baked sweets. There's a gata, which is a famous one in, in, in uh, Armenia, and it comes, it's a sort of a flaky pastry, layered pastry. And then there's just a little bit of a sort of butter and flour and sugar kind of filling in there. And it's just sort of melt in your mouth. And, ah, oh, you know, Armenian coffee with gata, there's not really much better than that. <laughs> uh, so it's really, there's, there's a lot of sweets. And, in fact, I don't have much of a uh, palate for sweets. I mean, I don't have a sweet tooth. And friends who, were, who knew I was going to Iran said... And one of my friends said, really, you know, I won't speak to you if you don't come back having tasted all the sweets in Iran because there's an extraordinary array of cookies. Um, they, and they make cookies out of chickpea flour. They make cookies out of rice flour, flavored with a little rose water and then with a little maybe a pistachio on top. And it's amazing out of very few ingredients, again, how much deliciousness yeah. there and is. And very delicate and melt in your mouth, as you melt mentioned before. Melt in your mouth, absolutely. Yeah. The rice, yeah. the rice cook, uh, cookies are incredible, very, very wonderful. Yeah. Um, one thing that I would like to 
for you to describe just at the end is the um, churchella. Uh, the, uh, the way of preserving and saving for a, a rainy day or a cold winter day. Well, here, so walnuts. we're back again to walnuts and and fruit. We're talking about fruit. So if you if you have walnuts and you have a walnut harvest and you have a long winter, as you do in Georgia, Armenia, um, Azerbaijan, and in parts of Iran as well, in Kurdistan, um, what? And I don't know who figured this out first. Okay, so we're not. <laughs> we can't give ownership to this. I always thought it was Georgian, but who knows. But while it's on a string, you cook down grape juice, uh, grapes, until you get a thick, thick syrup. And then you dip the string of walnuts or hazelnuts, it could be, into the syrup, and then you let it dry a bit, and then you dip it again, like you were making a candle. A candle. (laughs) And then they hang like, they look like sort of slightly lumpy candles that you might have made in grade three or something um, in, in stores. And what it is is the nuts are preserved. They're locked away. They aren't going to go rancid because they're sealed in by the by the fruit juice, usually grape juice. And then in the wintertime, families, you can cut slices of them. They look kind of like a slice of an O. Henry chocolate bar, mm. do you mm-hmm. know, with nuts in the middle. And, a nugget and with and the then chocolate. The, yes, yeah, and then yeah. there's this, but there's this lovely um, grape juice on the outside, grape leather, grape leather, fruit leather. And it's a way, again, of having summer bounty, autumn bounty in hard times especially i think right now in the spring there when it's when it's lent when people are not eating meat and you're in the mountains in the caucasus to have this taste of mm. fruit and nut i mean how luxurious now you know there's more trade and so on but if you were closed away in a farmhouse you'd be so grateful for that yeah well you have so many wonderful images in the book um i don't want to give it all away but you know, well, there are wonderful images and of um you know people out in the fields cooking on the fires and the old-fashioned mm. methods and and then some modern households as well sure. that you were invited to many of them and stores and restaurants um so you sort of saw it all in this trip for writing but what was what's what's the one image that you would like listeners sort of to carry away with them um, of the regions that you visited in our last minute here well I think I think it does come back to that hospitality to the to the family with how much money in a village in Armenia and I'm walking by in a laneway in this little village Tatev in the mountains and they they see me the visible foreigner just because I they don't know me and if if they knew me I'd be from the village they don't know me therefore I'm a foreigner and they haul me in and they're they're doing preserving tomatoes and they're chopping tomatoes and you know and of course the grandmother is doing all the work basically and everybody else is just having a nice time so they're grilling eggplants on a fire and they offer me a glass of tutovka which is um, mulberry vodka homemade hooch and it's not too strong it's kind of pleasant tutovka it was you know 10 or 11 in the morning but whatever <laughs> yes okay and so and then oh we'll have this a piece of bread with some grilled eggplant on it and then oh well no but then you have to have coffee and it's that engagement that preparedness to engage to hand over to the new met stranger what you have um, and not to ingratiate yourself just because what is better than human connection Mm. what is better than human connection hands across the sea that's right well this book certainly explores that to quite a degree and uh, again the name of the book is a taste of not even uh, it's just Taste of Persia. Taste of Persia. Taste okay. of Persia, Taste because of Persia. it just really, that notion of a culinary region that we need to get more and more acquainted with and certainly to appreciate. See, I'm all involved with a taste of the past, but this is just <laughs> Taste of Persia. Taste yes. of Persia yes. by Naomi Duguid. And Naomi, thanks so much. It, it, you color, you 
paint such beautiful pictures with your stories and the photographs are a match as well. Thanks so much, Linda. Real pleasure. And thank you for listening. Again, this has been A Taste of the Past, and I'm your host, Linda Palaccio. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.